0: This is Nick Walters with the National Hemp Growers Cooperative. Welcome to our webinar Wednesday series, and we are glad to be back in the saddle with our continual great guests, and this week is no different than that. We are, are glad to have uh, the Bradley boys, as I like to call them, back um, back online with us here, um, Witt Steiniker and Hunter Robinson, who are with the uh, Bradley group. Um, legal team experts, uh, in their cannabis group. And we always appreciate the legal update that every third Wednesday, we don't know exactly who the guests will be, but every third Wednesday, I can tell you who the guests will be. It'll be one of these two guys until they fire us. So we're, we're glad, um, <laughs> uh, to have them back on with us here and, and to be able to give us some good legal insight and update. So, um, uh, what I know is in your office, uh, Y'all's offices in Birmingham, at least that's where he's headquartered out of, and Hunter uh, is in uh, downtown uh, Smashville, Nashville. So unfortunately, um, I can't be there live as we have a couple of times previous, but at least we're uh, uh, we're back in the saddle on it. So guys, let me just turn it
1: over to you, and uh, you start uh, running with it. It looks like you're in the Library of Congress. Where, what? Me? Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a, oh, a yeah. heck of a backdrop. That's
0: terrific. I've I've read almost all of these. Not okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> if it helps me look smarter, I will take every little every little thing I can get, man. So,
2: yeah. go ahead. I heard, Y'all got it. You're that and ready to go, Hunter. Thanks, Nick. So, uh, like Nick said, my name is Hunter Robinson. Um, I'm a uh, associate at. Bradley A. Cummings in our cannabis and litigation groups. Um, I'm in our Nashville office. Um, and today, uh, I'm going to hand it off to witness a second for his intro, but today we will be presenting on kind of some uh, overview and, and best practices of raising capital in the hemp industry. Um, a little bit about our firm first. Uh, we are uh, Southeastern based firm um, have offices from Dallas all the way across the Southeast up to DC um, have about 500 lawyers and kind of do kind of the whole gamut of kind of business, you know, business work, transactional, litigation, um, compliance work. And uh, Wit and I are both on our cannabis industry team um, where we offer kind of full service um, legal representation to cannabis companies and their vendors, including, you know, insurance companies, banks, uh, basically anybody that touches the industry, we can, we can help advise them. Um, like I said, today we'll be presenting on, uh, raising capital in the hemp industry. Um, Whit, you want to do your introduction and and run through the agenda?
1: Sure. So, um, uh, as Nick said, I guess, my name is Whit Steineker. Uh, I'm a partner, Bradley, um, in the Birmingham office, although today I'm in our uh, Montgomery office. Uh, we, uh, I'm also sort of classically a litigator by training and have been working with the cannabis group in a variety of capacities for about four years now. Um, you know, one of the things, if you've been paying attention, you didn't hear either Hunter or I say that we are mergers and acquisitions lawyers or you know fundraising specialist and i'll say right off the bat you know anytime we do one of these things you should make sure that you take what we say as suggestions that you should use with your personal attorney or your your business attorney um, and this is one of those areas where you really do need a specialist um, you really do need someone uh, who knows the ins and outs of fundraising uh, because uh, there are some very specific rules that you have to follow um, and it's fraught with uh, missteps and, um, and, and financial peril um, for those, uh, you know, who, who don't follow the rules. And that's particularly true in a new industry where you may have investors who are new either to investing generally or to um, investing uh, in, in hemp companies. Um, and who may, you know, in, the, in an industry where candidly, you know, a lot of businesses don't succeed or they don't succeed immediately or they don't succeed to the level that, you know, people had hoped when they first invested money. So it's important that you, you know, really dot the T. What do you do with the eyes? You dot the I's, you cross the T's um, on this stuff because, you know, if somebody later says, well, you know, I was told one thing and then sold another. You can go back and have really well documented um, exactly what they were told. And there's specific ways that you go about doing that. So we're going to try to raise those issues for you. We've helped some companies through it. And then now that we've, Um, We're by no means experts in the in the field of fundraising, but we've seen it enough that we can sort of uh, give you some sort of pros and cons and and things to look out for. But this is one of those places we really want to look for lawyers. And lastly, before we get started, that is ironic because it's one of the places where we see typically terrible paperwork. You know, a lot of times people come to us and they want to raise money and we ask for the organizational documents and, you know, they're not done properly. And, uh, or they, you know, they say they had a contract with somebody for a, um, you know, to purchase some raw product if they're a processor or to uh, to sell some, uh, you know, industrial, uh, to sell some biomass. Um, and it turns out that it was never written down or it was essentially written down on the back of a napkin. Um, that doesn't mean those things can't be contracts, but they can be really hard to prove what the actual terms were. And so this is a place where you know, an ounce of prevention really can be worth a pound of cure. So, um, you know, it's, it's an old trope for lawyers to tell you that you need to hire lawyers. Um, That doesn't mean this has to be expensive. It just needs to be done carefully and properly. And, um, you know, you're, you're always, of course, welcome to call us, but we're also happy to recommend people who may be uh, closer to you or um, who may be a better fit for you if you you don't want to use us. But most importantly here is you really want to do it right. Because the consequences of this, of not getting this right can be pretty substantial. So along those lines, uh, we're going to Talk briefly i'll lead us off with a quick intro about sort of what the state of play with how do you make money um, with uh hemp and then we'll talk uh really quickly about um debt financing and a couple of different ways you can go about um debt financing um and then equity financing and then we'll talk about a couple of best practices um so you know if you've been in the industry for very long you know that sophisticated funding sources like banks and traditional sort of institutional investors uh, have long been wary of hemp. And that is uh, largely because they don't understand what it is. Um, Largely because, you know, if you're on this, if you're listening to us right now, you probably aren't confused about what the difference is between hemp and marijuana. But if you work at a bank, you very well may be. In fact, almost all the ones that I talk to are. When I say I have a client who wants to Open an account for a hemp company. They think you know that's the stuff people smoked uh, at Woodstock. Uh, they just don't know the difference. And now, what, you know, some of them are willing to get educated. Um, some are willing to dig in. Uh, but others, even if they're willing to uh, become educated and dig in, fall victim to this third issue, which is sort of a regulatory risk of you know, well, this company says they're doing hemp, but are they really growing marijuana? How would I know the difference? You know, what is it that I'm supposed to, what what, what due diligence obligations do I know? Do, do I owe in order to satisfy my anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act type uh, duties that banks have? And those are serious issues for banks that could cost them their federal charter. And, you know, bankers are just typically conservative. So all of those sort of conspire against the hemp industry, even though, of course, it is entirely legal, as we've said on a couple of different occasions. Um, to bank hemp. And the federal government's made that very clear. The statutes make that clear. But that's that's been the driving force of, of why it's difficult to obtain, you know, a traditional bank loan. Um, but more and more, we're seeing uh, smart money, you know, starting to flow into the industry. Entrepreneurial banks are starting to win. Credit unions have been a big source of funding. Um, and even sort of uh, some publicly traded companies, but also private equity groups, venture capitalists, uh, family offices uh, are, you know, seeing the the, the possibility um, at the high end of uh, of the hemp market um, of what the you know the upside. I think we all agree, and if you're on this call, you probably agree that for hemp is just extraordinary, um, and you know people want to be a part of it. So you know people are there. There's money to be had. It just may not be the way you would go and get money if you were starting a car wash. And so, what we're here to talk about today really is, you know, how, how to go about getting that money, and the various ways to do it. So, um, very quickly, just in terms of the difference between uh, debt financing and equity financing, which is something, uh, Hunter will talk about the debt. Um, you know, debt is what, you know, you probably think a debt is, right? You give me money and I'll pay it back, um, probably with interest. Um, that's, you know, a bank loan typically. Um, even if you ask your buddy, you know, can I borrow $500? And, you know, he says, sure, but, you know, you got to give me $515 a month. Um, you know, that's what we're talking about. And so you can, if you can find a bank that'll loan you money for your hemp company, um, and again, it's totally legal. So if they're open to that, uh, you can take out a traditional loan. You may expect to pay a slightly higher interest rate, um, and you may expect a, you um, know, uh, some other things that Hunter can tell you about, but bank loans are available uh, in increasing uh, ways. Uh, and then there's also friends and family, like any small business, um, you know, can somebody loan you $50,000 to get you started? Something like that, $20,000, anything like that. We'll talk about some pitfalls there. And then equity financing is um, you give me money and I'll give you a percentage or a piece of the company. And that's when we really want to, t- we're going to get into the securities laws. And that's where it gets um, really important to make sure you uh, you're following all the rules, uh, uh, to a T. So Hunter, I think you're well, first uh, we have, uh, we always have a thought of the day. Um, sometimes it's kind of random, but this time it actually relates exactly to this topic. And that is, um, sort of two thoughts. One, I think you should always probably ask for a little more than you think you need. Um, you don't want to, you know, ask for too much, but you typically need more than you think. Uh, but also in, in part and parcel of that, you don't want to be in constant fundraising. Though. It's no fun to raise money. Um, it 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 is a huge time suck uh, that uh, takes a lot of your attention from the other things you should be doing to operate your business. And so, you know, if you know you're going to need five million dollars um, over the next three years, I recommend not trying to raise you know one million dollars and then two million dollars and then another two million dollars. You know, eighteen months apart just go ahead and raise that first batch as much as you can. There's a lot of reasons to do that, including sort of the valuation and the price of money uh, over time. But also if you're in a constant state of fundraising, that means you're in a constant state of not devoting your full attention to growing your actual marketable product. So that's sort of a a thought of the day. It's something we see all the time. And um, if if you can stay ahead of that, uh, you'll be ahead of the game. What can I add something to that real quick?
0: to add on to your thought, you know, another thing is that I've seen in performers and and, and people who are, are particularly on the front end of really going for their first fundraise, they think they are uh, <clears throat> making themselves more attractive by not paying themselves to, uh, uh, to do the work. Oh, I'm not making any money out of this. I want to pay all my people. Maybe later I'll make some money which is really kind of foolhardy, right? Because the reality of it is, if you're not in it every day and you gotta go chase something else or do some other thing, you're really kind of putting your investment at risk. I mean, for the investor, right? They wanna know you're in, yes, let's pay you every day. And uh, um, I see that sometimes. And so I don't know if you guys see it as well, but some folks kind of think that that might be helping out because they didn't put themselves in on the payroll. and I. My experience is the
1: opposite of that. Is true. Yeah, a sophisticated investor is going to want the person that they believe in to be as involved in that company as possible, and to have as much of a stake in it um, and, and and its success uh, as they can. So, yeah, I, I think that's
2: entirely true. Cool. Didn't mean to stop your mojo there,
0: Hunter. So, cool.
2: You're good. Um, so, as Whit said, I'm going to you know talk about uh, debt financing um and you know that's kind of a traditional a loan. um the most common way businesses normally get that is, is from a bank and whit kind of gave a, an overview of, of why that can be difficult um you know more and more banks are starting to bank hemp, but it is still at this stage somewhat surprising to me that 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 is still this difficult um you know and and a lot of that is kind of from the the compliance risk that went discussed. Um, There's just a lot of costs that banks have to incur kind of on their, you know, kind of staffing up a compliance team, paying for outside lawyers to advise them. um, And then kind of having a little bit of kind of tail risk of kind of, you know, screwing it up somehow, thinking they're giving a hemp loan and and actually lending to a marijuana company and something like that. Um, So, you know, kind of the first thing to, to do is kind of locate a bank um, that will loan to hemp companies. Um, there are a few in the south. There's there's kind of more um, out west and up north that still may be willing to to deal with companies down here. Um, so that's kind of the first step. Um, and you know what you what you can expect. Witt highlighted this too, you know, banks need to get. Yeah, you they know, they're not going to give a loan unless they can make money. Um, and with all the increased cost to them to to loan to hemp companies. Um, you can expect a higher interest rate than you would for, you know, kind of a traditional, you know, commercial real estate loan or something, you know, if you're getting it for your, your, your hemp dispensary, that interest rates probably gonna be a little bit higher. There's probably gonna be some additional application fees and kind of fees throughout. Um, the second thing to expect, and it also goes to kind of the compliance concerns for banks is a pretty intrusive, um, application process. So banks, um, have, uh, Obligations under the Bank Secrecy Act and other anti-money laundering statutes, um, and one one of those obligations is so-called know-your-customer rules. And the federal government has offered guidance to banks that are lending to hemp companies with sort of red flags to look out for, and and kind of how um, this particular industry raises specific money laundering concerns. Um, so you know, you're going to have to provide, and that's kind of the first step and kind of one of the best practices, I guess, is, is to, before you start reaching out to banks, is kind of get your, is to anticipate the due diligence they need and get your documents together. So you're going to want to have kind of all your organizational documents in in order, um, assuming that you are in a sole proprietorship, you know, your, your operating agreements, your your certificates that you filed with the Secretary of State for your LLC, that kind of thing. Um, you're going to want information on your management team, um, certainly any kind of controlling controlling shareholders or, or, or significant shareholders, um, you know, any kind of the C-suite, you know, the CEO, your, your vice presidents, that kind of thing. Um, you're going to probably need their, um, you know, kind of basic information, you know, full names, addresses, some tax documents, social security numbers, that kind of thing. Um, always also have your financial documents in order and your tax documents in order, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, your, your balance sheets, your P&Ls, probably for the last couple of years. Um, and and all of that may be somewhat obvious. I think one that may be a little bit less obvious is um, getting any sort of kind of customer facing marketing in order. So, you know, one of the biggest compliance risks for companies in general um, is, FDA and FDC regulations about making what they refer to as health claims. And that is a claim like, you know, take my CBD, it will cure your arthritis. Or CBD products have been shown to, you know, decrease the symptoms of dementia, anything like that. Um, Those are because of the FDA's um, regulations and kind of slow walking these hemp specific and CBD specific regulations about how you can market it. Um, those are all unlawful forms of marketing because CBD is a, um, is an ingredient in a currently, uh, licensed drug called Epidiolex. So, you know, I would make sure that all of your websites, you know, social media, things like that, are making any sorts of claims like that. That is something that I know a lot of banks that, um, will bank hemp or will look for, will kind of scrub those kind of your websites and your socials for those sort of claims. And so, and this kind of leads to the second topic, um, because bank loans are so difficult to find and, and can be expensive. A lot of early stage companies, or early stage hemp companies turn to family and friends to, to loan them money. Um, a lot of early stage companies outside the hemp industry do that as well. And, you know, that's all well and good, dealing with family and friends, you know, mixing family, friends and business can somewhat be, you know, can, can be painful sometimes, but, you know, if you're willing to, to make that jump, um, it can be an easy source of capital if they have it. Um, but there are, as Whit mentioned at the outset, there kind of, there can be a couple of pitfalls there. Um, one is that, you know, if somebody, if your, your mom loans you money and, and doesn't expect to get paid back any more than what she loans you, um, that could be considered a gift under state and federal tax laws, which is totally legal, but it has tax consequences. Um, that's something to look out for. Um, and the second one in it's kind of the flip side. So um, you have to watch out and we'll get into securities laws um, in a second, but you need to make sure that your, the loans from family and friends aren't considered securities under federal and state securities laws, because that implicates fairly onerous regulations and uh, regulations that are that are easy to mess up and, and pretty expensive to get right. Um, and so it's probably beyond the, the scope of this short web- webinar to go into all that, but you know, a couple things to say on the front end, you know, if you're getting a loan from one person, rather than getting a loan from a bunch of different people, it's less likely to be a security. Um, If it's more, if it looks more like a traditional loan, um, it's less likely to be considered a security. So not an exorbitant interest rate, um, no sort of, you know, convertible to shares, nothing like that, just kind of a straight up, you know, $10,000 at at X percent interest rate, or, you know, $10,000 and you pay me back 12,000 at some point. Um, those are less likely to be considered securities, um, and kind of the, the the final thing, you know. Even if it's your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, um, I would make sure to paper the transaction. Um, you know, nobody ever thinks a business deal is going to go bad, and they get into it, but they go bad all the time. So you want to make sure you have something you you can point to if you get into a dispute that says no this is exactly what we agreed to. you know this is this is what we said would happen if this arose. Um, and you know you can keep those documents fairly simple and if it's for a low amount of money, you know maybe you you can kind of just write down the basic terms but I mean at least do that and for any significant amount of money, um, you know you, you probably need to get a lawyer involved. Um, and with that I will turn it over to wit to discuss uh, the, the other type of financing which is equity financing.
1: Sure. One other point there too, you know, not only do people not think it's going to go bad, if it goes really well, now all of a sudden everybody's like, well, wait a minute, hold on. You said I had a, uh, you know, 22% stake in that when it really was a $5,000 gift. So, you know, all the, just all the reasons in the world to pay for it up, you know, and anybody who, who want to engage with you in that process, you know, I think you want to use that as a indicator that, um, uh, either you don't, may not want to do business with them, or that's exactly why you should paper it up um, just to avoid any sort of uh, complications down the road. Um, and the beginning is always the best time to do it. That's when friends, nobody knows they're going to be rich, so um, everybody's happy to you know divvy it up then. Um, equity financing. This is this is the little trickier stuff. So this really is we're going to do the issue spotting. Really, this is when you should consult the lawyer. Um, uh and like I said, we're happy to put you in touch with the ones who can do this and guys who do this every day, guys and, and ladies who do this every day. But <clears throat> you know, when you're thinking about giving up a piece of your company, I mean, first of all, uh, I mean, I think you should give up as little as you possibly can. Because, you know, if you believe in your company, um, you're gonna want to have as much of it as you can in the event that there's some, you know, big exit opportunity, some sale, you know, some monster corporation will come and wants to buy you out because you you, you you have the next great idea. You know, you want as much of that equity as you can. Uh, But, you know, sometimes you have to part with it for really good reasons. So, you know, what's your goal? You know, do you just need money to make payroll? Um, Do you need, you know, to buy a piece of equipment? If so, you know, can you do that through debt financing um, and pay it back, you know, sort of through um, your general revenue streams? If so, you know, I'd strongly consider that. But, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, taking on capital Can increase the value of those existing shares either because you know it's a significant injection of cash that can allow you to do things that you otherwise can't do or wouldn't be able to borrow for any number of reasons uh or it's because it's some sort of strategic partner um you know if you are a um a grower and you wanted to you know become more vertically integrated you know maybe you take on a processor and you know now all of a sudden Uh, or you've got another grower, you know, who does something uh, similar, but, you know, slightly different to you. Um, And now all of a sudden you realize your purchasing power is a lot bigger, or, you know, they have some expertise in some other area of the field uh, that adds tremendous value to you. You know, that's an instance where you may want to give up equity. And so, you know, who are your potential investors? Again, it can be family and friends. You can give equity um, to family and friends. Sometimes that, um, oftentimes that can look like, sort of what we call a negotiated transaction, which is less than a full fledged securities offering, um, where, you know, if you've got one person who says, you know, that's a great idea, I'll give you a million dollars for it. Um, And you can agree on sort of terms and everybody understands the deal and you paper it up and it it, it is uh, less burdensome and uh, less time consuming and less expensive on the professional side uh, if you have a deal like that. Uh, But a lot of times, um, you need to, uh, uh, you need to sort of go out into the market generally, you know, be it, uh, geographically, you know, throughout the Southeast or throughout the country or the world, uh, or to certain types of, uh, industries or associations, or, you know, some people have connections through with family offices. Um, and, you know, they uh, you know, those are the types of people, um, you know, who might be wanting to make larger sort of investments. So venture capital, PE funds, um, and then, uh, you know, family offices generally. Um, and then I think you'll at the start, you want to know what your pitch is and you, you got to have it. I mean, you're going to get a maybe, you know, a, some short time with these people um, when you talk to them about your idea and you've got to have something that cuts to the noise. This isn't a legal point, but, you know, it's just something worth rehashing. We, we've sat in meetings where, you know, clients have talked to, You know, either our clients have talked to business folks or uh, other people have talked to our business clients. And you can just tell when when they come in with the right pitch, here's what we need the money for. Here's how it's gonna raise. If you give us a hundred thousand dollars, here's how we're gonna turn that investment into, you know, a lot more money. You know, we're gonna work through it. As Nick said, you know, they got their documents right. They got the pro forma um, and, you know, they use credibility. Um, and what they do and belief in what they do um, and enthusiasm in what they do. Um, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that, that'll typically, um, you know, resonate with these companies. Uh, because a lot of times, I mean, frankly, as much in diligence as they want to do, you know, a lot of these guys feel like they're throwing darts at a board because the industry is so new. So it might not be all that difficult to really differentiate yourself from some of the people in the space, but you've really got to make a point to do that. So, Hunter, what's, uh, next slide. Um, So, there's a, uh, private placement um, is a a certain type of uh, securities offering. And securities, you know, the easiest way to think about it is we're selling shares, basically. A lot of things can be securities. And you should talk to an attorney before you offer any part of your company or anything contingent upon your company's performance. Uh, to someone else for, for money, um, could possibly could constitute, uh, a security. And if it's a security, then it triggers obligations under the federal and state securities laws. Um, and we're getting very close to the edge of my, uh, specific knowledge, so I'm not, I'm not gonna take you too far down the wormhole, but, uh, once you get into that world of being within the securities laws that's where you get into sort of a lot of box checking. So, okay, I wanna do a securities offering. So I'm gonna be offering some shares in my company. Well, maybe I can do a private placement. So maybe instead of doing some, you know, hundred page um, uh, document that describes every conceivable sort of business strategy and risk or whatever, um, I'm gonna have, you know, more of like a 10 page, 15 page letter that I'm going to send out to a certain type of investor, a sophisticated investor, um, so that they can give me money. That may work. Now, there's some tricks to that. You can only do that when you're dealing with accredited investors, and we have some uh, descriptions here about the types of people who can be accredited investors, typically wealthy individuals and businesses. Um, the assumption there is that you know people who are you know of that type of wealth, you know, typically will have a level of sophistication. Now, that is obviously <laughs> that ignores uh, a lot of realities. But uh, as a general rule, that there's the assumption there is that, you know, you're not taking advantage of people, um, you know, who can least afford to be taken advantage of. So, you know, if you go and, and limit your offerings to these private equity groups and these family offices, then your burdens under the security laws are significantly less, um, far less compliance costs, it takes less time. Uh, But there's still rules that you have to follow. So don't think just because the person who gives you the money happens to be a millionaire means that, um, uh, you know, you don't have to paper it up. You still do. And there's still very specific rules to follow. It's just a little bit easier. So follow the rules, but it's a little bit easier. Um, Your, you know, corporate transactional attorney um, should be able to do that. If not, again, we have folks uh, who can help you out with that. Hunter, Next. Um, okay. Uh, sort of wrapping up. Generally, um, all, you know, planning ahead is just good, it's just good practical advice for almost anything. But it's really important here. It takes a while to do this. I mean, every now and then somebody comes in and says, "I've got somebody who wants to give me all the money that I need, and they're willing to sign anything that we want them to sign." You know, sort of an angel type investor. Um, who has tons of money and just really wants me to succeed. That's great if it happens, but usually it doesn't. And a lot of times people come in and say, don't worry, I've got the money lined up. And then once you start sort of putting the papers in front of everybody, and then maybe they their lawyer starts looking at stuff, all of a sudden it's not there anymore, or it's way less than it would have been. Um, and, you know, maybe that says something about lawyers, but it also says something about, um, uh, you know, there's probably some adage about, you know, counting chickens or something, you know, it's easy to say you have the money lined up and it's easy for somebody to tell you that they're gonna give you money. Um, but just way more often than not, when somebody comes in and tells us that they've already basically raised X amount, they don't actually get X amount. Um, so it's gonna take a while to raise. So, you know, start early, plan ahead, think of how much money you actually need and then think about how you wanna go about getting it. The second, be deliberate. I mean, this is what Hunter talks about. You got to get your stuff in order. Um, you know, the you, you're rarely going to get a second chance on this stuff if you go in and your documents look bad. So all the you know we've had several sessions before about sort of corporate documents and you know why it's important to have this stuff. Well, this is one of those really important times that you want to do it right because if they're not if they look sloppy, you know, a sophisticated investor is is used to looking at business opportunities that look a certain way. It might be a, like I said, a car wash, or it might be a hemp company, but they're used to seeing, you know, uh, corporate bylaws. They're used to seeing, you know, certain things. They're used to being able to ask for a certain type of document, uh, board minutes, you know, things like that, and having somebody hand it to them. And all of a sudden, when you know they get a handwritten note on legal pad and it's passed off as, you know, the board's, you know, unanimous consent on some significant action. I think it just starts to raise a little doubt about, well, how well has this company been run? Like how well have the books been kept? Those types of things. So, you know, keep your papers in order. It doesn't cost, it costs just a little extra, you know, to be really good on that point. Um, And then, you know, if you find these strategic partners, that's just fantastic. Um, It's so hard to be good at, you know, multiple things. And if you have a great, you know, idea for a hemp company, or you're really good at growing or, uh, you know, transporting or processing or anything like that. And you have, you know, a connection in the industry who can introduce you to, you know, other people who can, you know, make your company exponentially more valuable than you could do sort of in a linear way. um, You know, that's the ticket, right? I mean, that's how, that's where you get that type of growth, um, you know, that really sets you apart. So. And that's oftentimes going to come with having to give up equity. But you may be thrilled to do that if it's somebody who can take you, you know, from, you know, one x year over year to a ten x, um, you know, by giving them, you know, eight percent of your company. You know, it could be a no brainer. So um, look for those people uh, who can really make your company grow in a way that is uh, disproportionate to what you're giving up. Um, that's of course the trick. Anybody who's sophisticated is gonna wanna extract the exact opposite from you, right? Um, but, you know, that's what you should be looking for. It's your company, it's your idea, you have the equity. Try not to, don't don't give it away to all of the, your early employees um, because you're gonna need some of it to, to give to other people and you want as much, keep as much as you can. So, um, you know, those are sort of best practices based on things um, that we've seen uh, in the past. So. I think, Hunter, that's what we have, but I know we wanted to leave it open for uh, any questions from Nick or anyone else. Great. Well, let's see if uh,
0: <clears throat> we've got any any questions that are coming in uh, that, that might come in through the chat box. You know, for those of you that are listening uh, to this as a podcast, um, uh, you will hear uh, at the end of the podcast here about how you can always go back and and watch these videos. So some of the great slides that are on here and other things and information, contact information for Whit uh, and Hunter are on here as well. So you'll, you'll wanna loop back to them. Hey, I, a couple of questions that I've had. Um, talk about, when you talk about the, the qualified investor and you threw those numbers up about what their kind of income was or what their capability is, ultimately what you're trying to figure out and make sure is that somebody says well junior you can't go back to college next year because i put all your you know all your tuition money on this gig and so you really weren't as qualified you didn't have the capacity the bandwidth the cash to be able to do all that right i mean that's essentially kind of what you're 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 saying but basically but the investor the qualified investor has to certify that she is indeed a qualified investor. It's not like you are saying, hey, let me see your checking account. Or I want to be able to know that you're you're saying to the investor, yes, we'd like your $50,000 and here's what you're getting for it. But they are signing that they indeed are a qualified investor. That's not on you as the person seeking the money to
1: verify that. That's right. So it's on them to to, to do it. Um, And that, So whether they are an accredited investor goes to the types of offerings, the type of offering you have and the obligations that you have under that offering in its entirety, regardless of how much money they end up investing. So even if, you know, I guess it's important to remember, even if this person is ultra wealthy, uh, certifies that they're an accredited investor, you know, uh, checks all the boxes. Um, and then only gives you $5,000, you know, it's still important that you go through that process if you're running sort of a private placement, sort of short form, way to think of it, offering. Uh, Whereas someone who is not an accredited investor, um, you know, theoretically, uh, they could have a lot of money, but they didn't for the last two years, um, you know, have a certain annual income. So they can make quite a large investment, Uh, but still not be accredited, which means that you need to run sort of, you know, a different type of uh, an offering. And so very quickly, as you start to do this, you realize if you think about it. So we see one of two things. Um, Either people come in and they immediately understand this and they say, y'all just do it. You know, I know this is probably going to be more expensive than I want, but just do it. That's fine. Or more likely they come in and they have already raised money, you know, a couple of different times and just absolutely didn't pay any attention to any of this. And that's one of those things that's, you know, it's sort of like it's fine right until it isn't. Um, and, uh, and and I will just say, you know, to the extent that it helps reinforce this, this isn't just, you know, um, lawyer sort of, uh, you know, story time, you know, trying to tell spook stories, you know, this is, um, these are, some of these are criminal statutes and the securities rules. And, you know, your obligations are extremely serious. Uh, And the consequences are extremely serious. So, um, you know, and one last thing, just, you know, just to help the lawyers out, Um, you can typically wrap legal fees um, into the raise. And so, you know, your investors don't necessarily want to, um, you know, give the lawyers a windfall. But, you know, I think it's everybody's interest to make sure that it's done in, in conjunction in, in accordance with the uh, securities rules. So, um, you know, you can spend a little extra and it's sort of like wrapping the closing cost in, um, you know, you can put some of those legal fees um, into the closing as long as everybody understands that that's what's happening and you fully disclose it and things like that. Cool.
0: All right. So tell me this. Um, another question is: Tell me what a convertible note is. Uh, uh, sometimes see those things going around, particularly for startup entities.
2: Hunter. Oh man, you've already uh, you may have already exhausted my knowledge of this. So it's, it's essentially it's a it's a loan that can convert into equity at some you know if certain triggering events occur. Um, and that is something that is um, are are very common um, generally and and especially with early stage companies, Nick as you um, alluded to, but those are something that um, look a lot more like securities. And so Witt alluded to this as well. You know, you think of the basic security as a stock. Every, I think everybody kind of understands that. But anything that is the test courts use to figure it out is pretty complicated. but generally, Yes. If something is in any way connected to the success of the business, um, you know, when you, when you get a loan you don't pay it back, the bank just gets the money you owe. Um, something that's dependent on the success of the business is something where somebody gives you a certain amount of money and something, if the business does better, they make even more than if the business doesn't and a convertible note is certainly that. So, you know, if you're, even if you're raising money, via certain types of debt that still implicates all the securities laws that WIT, um, kind of went over. And one other thing I'll say about Wood's thing, you know, something else we've seen is that, you know, when you go make your big raise, people want to see how you raised before. Um, And so, you know, you do something with your family or friend that ends up being a security. And you say, I didn't really worry about that. I know my mom's not going to sue me no matter what happens. You know, I didn't worry about paying a lawyer to do all the securities kind of hoop jumping. Um, When your business takes off and you go try to raise from a private equity fund, they're going to want to see how you did your prior raises and you're going to look like a clown. If you have a bunch of, you know, securities, you know, that you've sold without doing it right. So, you know, something that, that there's, there's, there's business risk in addition to legal risk to, to not doing the security stuff correctly.
1: One, what, one thing on the convertible stuff, just be, 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 um, be cognizant of that. It's an interesting tool, right? If someone says, um, I'll give you hundred thousand dollars. Uh, if you'll give me 12% annually, Um, but I also can forego that for, you know, X percent, you know, X amount of equity, you know, in the event of X, you know, following stuff happens, just understand what that means. You know, if you're presented with that opportunity, right. Um, you know, first of all, how bad do you need the money, but also, you know, could you take the 12% or could you say, well, no, I don't want to do that. Maybe I'll give you 13% because, you know, if all of a sudden you say that, it's a million-dollar valuation. They want to give you a hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, you think, well, they get ten percent of the company if it's converted. But what if it's worth thirty million dollars at the turn at the end of the term? And you know, now they have three million dollars. They just got a two million-dollar windfall that they're able to convert to. So you just want to think about um, sort of all the range of consequences if you go that route. But it may be a way to entice, uh, you know, people to you know, to invest, and, and, you know, look, you may, if there may be certain investors that you're so interested and eager to have on that you'd be thrilled if they got a windfall, because that meant that you got, you know,
2: a windfall as well.
1: Right, and it may, it may be what allows you to go fight another day, right, Right.
0: and and it may be the thing that, that you needed that cash in order to, um, uh, you know, keep everything, you know, keep everything rolling, right, that may be the thing that, that that it works that way so that's very cool guys as always thank you i don't think we had any questions this time but um <coughs> uh, uh always anybody who's listening will be able to come back and and, and look and find um quit and hunters uh contact info as well for our our next uh session that we have with them next month i i feel very comfortable to say that if you have some particular question you would like to see us cover, or you would like to see uh, uh, Whit and Hunter uh, speak about, I think we would love to be able to know that ahead of time, uh, just so that that we could make sure and cover those things. And that's part of the reason that if you're listening to this as our podcast, that we have kept the um, webinar live 2 o'clock every Wednesday Central Time as an opportunity to be able to hear from from the folks who are who are are, uh, participating out there in this great wide, wide world of hemp stuff. So we appreciate again our guest, Morris Beagle from last week. Morris is an industry leader and and, uh, the uh, founder of NOCO, and also along with his partner, Lizzie, uh, are uh, founders of the Southern Hemp Expo, which will be taking place in a couple of weeks, uh, depending on what time you're hearing this, but over Labor Day weekend. So uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, uh, we at the co-op will be there with bells on and we'll be presenting and we'll be a, a part of all of that. And then next week, our guest is Jamie uh, Campbell Petty. And Jamie is the executive director of the Midwest Hunt Council. She is right in the middle of, of Indiana and they are doing all kinds of good things, including a field day, they're gonna have the end of August we're recording this, that uh, we're gonna go out and watch some hemp be decorticated and harvested and shown what it all looks like when it's going through that particularly in the fiber uh, side and the grain side. So we're looking forward to that as well too. Uh, Wet and Hunter, as always, thanks guys. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Right, until next time, thanks. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.